In the history of, uh, of humanity, it is interesting to look back and to see what we have at various times in history used as currency. All right, you've all heard the uh, different times people, people, I'll give you a chicken for whatever, or I'll, yeah, for your daughter. Maybe that's what it used to be, chickens and cows for your daughter. Um, that was maybe a form of currency. Um, and, uh, but throughout, we've used things like animals or leather or rocks or metals, all kinds of things that we have used as a form of currency to exchange one thing of value to one person to another thing of value to another. And so if you look back, I've got two or three examples here of maybe some more random ones. Uh, this is the biggest currency that I think I've ever seen, and it maybe exists, but this is called the Rye Stones on the island of Yap in Micronesia, which I didn't double check that. I'm assuming this is true. I may be being pulled by leg, but uh, if someone asks you for change, you might need to get help a large, slightly larger coin purse. But these massive limestones were between 5 and 20 feet in diameter, and I'm not sure. I think this is true. I trust it. It's on the internet. It's got to be true. Their value may be determined by how many people perished while transporting them. So um, I don't know about that. But uh, anyway, I will double check that. I should have done that before I said it out loud. Uh, but uh, anyway, there's one example of some currency. Here's a more smaller one, more practical and more modern one. This is from Palau. Uh, these are holy water coins. In the country of Palau, a silver dollar coin was issued in 2007 with the image of the Virgin Mary on it. Sounds innocent enough, but except in that little... Uh, tube thing in the middle. There's just a little, a couple drops of holy water from uh, Lord's France. And so uh, I don't know if it's a lucky coin. I don't know how that does anything better for you, but it is decorative. And last but not least is um, at least maybe one of the most valuable, largest legal tenders there exists in the world. This $1 million Canadian dollar is made mostly of gold, of course. It is 99.999% pure gold and weighs 220 pounds. Um, it's uh, the value, of course, fluctuates with the price of gold, uh, but either way, it is a beautiful thing. So if you're looking for Christmas ideas, there you go. Um, I have a large stocking, I'm just saying. And so, uh, and, uh, so anyway, those are examples of, uh, of things that uh, people have used as currency. And so, but it could be pieces of paper, it could be lots of different things that we'll use as currency. It's simply a way for two people to exchange things of value to both parties. And so that leads me to a question I want us to think about as we think about the theme of grace this, um, this day. Um, what is the currency of heaven? What is the currency of the kingdom of God? And more specifically, here's the question I want us to think about this morning. What do I offer to God that shows my worthiness to enjoy his favor and blessings? What do I bring to God, right? And those other things, I, I could bring a, a chicken, a goat, those things. There's lots of stories in the Old Testament that kind of lead to the place where that's not, it. that doesn't satisfy uh, everything God wants from us. So what do I offer to God that shows my worthiness to enjoy his favor and blessings? In your reading this week in chapter 45 in Core 52, Mark Moore began by reminding us that most religious systems in the world emphasize some level of human effort for you to turn for you to in turn bring to God, and then God gives you his favor and blessings and his attention. Um, maybe it's good works. Maybe you, the, some philosophies would say that you live a good, a good life, you do certain things, you bring those to God, and God says, okay, that's enough. And you get his favor and blessings. Maybe it's pilgrimages. Maybe it's certain prayers that you might be required to pray. Um, I spent a few months in, in, a, in a 
country in Asia, and I was in college, and uh, I watched a person in a temple continuing to roll, roll these dice, just hoping that they could get the right combination of dice to come up that, that they might feel like they would get favor and blessings from the God they, they were worshiping that day. And so the question, though, for us as people that are seeking after Jesus is what does heaven require of us? Is that what God wants? Is you, for you to be a better person than the average bear? And that's enough? Um, the answer, if you kept reading this week, or if you read your Bible, is, is no. Things in Christ's kingdom, his economy, doesn't work that way. Ephesians 2.8 this week told us what the kingdom currency is. When it says this, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, speaking of our salvation, is not your own doing, it's God's gift to you. So grace is the currency of the kingdom of heaven. So in answer to the question of what do I offer God, the proper answer is nothing. I don't have anything to give him that equals anything he could give to me. There's an old song that the church has sung for a long time called Rock of Ages. And one of the verses from that song in Rock of Ages says these words, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so again, that summarizes this theological truth that, that when I am trying to gain the favor and the blessings of God, I don't have anything to offer in exchange for those blessings, for God's goodness. But God gives them to us kindly through his grace. And so John 8 gives us a picture. You can look in several places in Scripture, especially in the life of Jesus and following, where you find this grace uh, economy at work. And John chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, just describes a scene in which Jesus gives grace to someone who uh, is not in a place to really offer anything or, or, or even deserve it. It says this um, in verse 3 of John 8, Now the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, uh, and after placing her in the center of the courtyard, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Again, that's an awkward scene. Um, a woman, uh, probably she was set up. If you read kind of the, maybe between the lines here, a lot of ungodly things going on around this. But uh, um, this woman's placed in the middle of this courtyard. She is guilty. She's not in a position to beg, barter, or do anything. She has nothing to offer the Lord. And so the Pharisees condemn her. They accuse her. And they say this, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now they were saying this to test him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. So again, this is not a, a healthy thing. This is a very unhealthy thing where a woman is being exploited for religious purposes. It's an ugly, ugly thing. But Jesus turns this in from this ugly thing into a beautiful thing. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote in the ground. And they persisted in asking him. He straightened up and said to them, He who was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote in the ground. And we don't know what he wrote. Maybe it was the sins of the Pharisees, or their secrets, or all their things. I don't know. Um, we're not told. But he went on to say this. Now, when they heard this, they began leaving one by one, beginning with the older ones, and then he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the courtyard. So you go with this big, angry, frustrated crowd to just the two of them. 
And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, do not sin any longer. And so what you're given is just this introductory thing, this picture of how this whole grace thing works. This woman, who was guilty by every way you could probably look at it, um, has nothing to offer Jesus. There's no um, bar- begging or borrowing or, or, or negotiating. It's simply a woman who's caught, and she's vulnerable. She's in a terrible place. And yet, what does she receive? She doesn't receive grace from everybody else. She receives condemnation. They're ready to stone her. But from Jesus, who shows us the economy of, of heaven, she receives grace. And so that grace that is illustrated here is simply illustrated in the rest of Scripture as well. We bring nothing. We stand guilty before God. We are vulnerable. We are naked. We are judged and condemned. um, And we are guilty. Um, We have nothing to fall back to. Yet Christ, in His grace and His mercy, He bestows His favor and His blessings upon us. And so grace then sets us free, and it changes us. And so one thing I I think that that passage from John 8 is instructive to is is that grace is not just about forgiveness. That is a wonderful thing. But grace is also meant to be transformative. Go and sin no more, right? There's this freedom, but there's this freedom into something new. And so when you read about what grace is in Scripture, um, there's several places we could look. But I want to look at this one as it's a testimony of Paul, another person who found himself in a place where he was guilty. He had nothing to negotiate with God because of who he had been and what he had been doing in in opposition to God uh, and the work that he was opposing in Jesus and the persecuting the church. And yet Paul, his testimony has shared five or six times throughout the pages of Scripture, which is an interesting thing I, I read this week, that many times, both in Luke's recording the book of Acts, three times it shows up there, then later even in Paul's writings, he continues to go back to his testimony about what God had done through grace in his life and how that transformed him. And so today I want us to read the, that passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Um, and as we read what he writes, I want us to dig out of this passage some things where we can kind of look and say, well, okay, if this is what grace did in the life of one follower of Christ, in Paul's life, um, there's probably some things that are pretty typical of what grace does in the life of all people who seek after the Lord. And I think there are things to measure ourselves by to say, um, is grace at work in my life? Am I putting myself in a position through faith to allow God to work in my life and allow His grace to be doing that work. And so, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because He considered me faithful, um, putting me into service. Now, if you would just stop right there, you would think, okay, Paul must have been a pretty good guy, well-educated, well-trained, ready to serve Jesus. But that's not where Paul goes with this. Paul goes to, even though... And those words are important when we think about the theme of grace. Because he did all these things for me, even though. And so a person who who understands and who lives in grace always needs to keep those kinds of words close in the front of their mind. That, yeah, I get to do this, or yeah, I got this opportunity to serve, and God has forgiven me, and God gives me a future hope, and all these things, even though. And what does Paul goes on to say? Even though I was previously a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. But 
instead of receiving the judgment and condemnation I should have received for those things, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. You'll find if you read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the book of Titus, Paul will use this little phrase several places to kind of drive home a key theological truth that he wants Timothy or Titus or us to pick up on. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, he could have stopped right there. That would have been a great theological truth, and it is true in every way. But Paul doesn't stop there. He makes it personal. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's an understanding of grace at work in his life. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the leading sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So I read that passage, and, and I just, I'm going to draw out five things from this passage that I think are just measuring sticks for us, that allow us to be able to say, you know what, this is what grace did in Paul's life. And I think it's a helpful comparison to be say, to, for us to hold up our lives and say, am I really relating to the Lord through grace? Or am I either not trying to relate to him, or am I trusting in something else that, that doesn't produce this kind of fruit? And so the first is this. Paul helps us to know what it looks like and feels like to have grace at work in our lives in this. When grace is at work, I have a deep appreciation for the pardon and forgiveness that Jesus brought. I have a deep appreciation for the pardon and forgiveness that Jesus brought. In one of Jesus' interactions with another woman who had come to him in repentance and grief over her sin, she falls at his feet and and weeps at his feet. She's mourning her sin um, in her way of begging for mercy and grace. There is a statement in that context um, in which the statement comes and says this, that she loves much because she has been forgiven much. And that statement is, is penetrating because the scene in which that takes place is in a, a Pharisee's home. A man who is upright and, and great in his standing. He's religious. He's moral. He's all these things that from the outside looking in, he is what you want a religious person to be. But he doesn't love much. He doesn't love the Lord much. And the implication that this woman who comes and falls at Jesus' feet loves Jesus a lot because she knows she has a deep appreciation for the pardon and the forgiveness that Jesus made available to her. And the implication is, if you flip that around, that the Pharisee doesn't love the Lord much because he really hasn't experienced much forgiveness. Now, Jesus isn't saying he didn't need it. He did need it. He needed to repent he needed to recognize that, that he, even all of his religiosity, if that's a word, all of his religious stuff wasn't good enough to offer his currency to the Lord because, as Isaiah would say, it's just filthy rags. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags to the Lord. And so that story of a woman who Jesus says she loves much because she has forgiven much, the implication is, one of the ways that I measure how grace is working in my life is how much do I appreciate the pardon and the forgiveness that Jesus has made available to me 
mentor to you. And if, and if I go through most of my week, most of my days, most of my year, and I've really not deeply moved by the thought of Christ saving me, then something is wrong there. That is a sick heart. That is a heart that is not interacting well with grace. Because Paul doesn't write these words as a man who's just become a Christian. This testimony that Paul is giving comes two, three decades into serving Jesus. And Paul is still having this deep appreciation for the pardon and the forgiveness that Jesus brought to him. He still appreciates grace. And so I would just ask you, as you think about Paul's example here, where Paul would say, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who has strengthened me because he's considered me faithful. He has put me into service, even though. And so maybe you have been a Christian for a long time, and maybe you have grown in your faith and you've been able to do things for him. But the danger is, is that we trusted Christ at the beginning to save us, but then we just kind of take the reins ourselves, And we think, I got it. He got me going. I can, I can see this through. We forget the even though part. And so grace calls us to live with that even though mentality. And so do you have a deep appreciation for the pardon and forgiveness that Jesus brings to us? Is there really an appreciation in the depths of your heart and your mind for what he's done? Number two, sin, that forgiveness that Paul experienced, that pardon, that forgiveness sin in his life was replaced with something. And that's the second thing, that I see a growing faith and love in me produced from the overflow of this grace. That not only does it pardon me and forgive me, that grace is wonderful to do that, but grace, when it's a work in your life, it overflows, it produces faith and love. Again, go back in the book of Acts and read the story of Paul, a man who was, in his own words, was a blasphemer, was a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And those kind of ratchets each one up, right? Blasphemy just said blasphemous words about Jesus, about who he wasn't and, and tearing him down. But he took it a notch higher. He's a persecutor, right? He, he went after, he imprisoned Christians. He, he took parts in their deaths. He was a violent man who delighted in hurting believers. But when he met the Lord, that grace forgave that, but it replaced it. Something else grew in its place, and that something else was faith and love. It was faith in, in Christ, where before he had been living in disbelief and disobedience to Christ, and now he lives in faith and faithfulness, and you find this ever-growing faith in the Lord that would, would, would call upon him, and you would see him risk everything in obedience to Christ. He trusted in Christ that much. He had faith in Christ that much. He had this growing faith to obey him, follow him, go where he told him to go, be who he told him to be. But it wasn't just faith, it was love as well. You find a man who at one point in his life hates anything to do with Jesus. He hates Christians. He, he angrily and, and violently hated them. But now you find him loving them, where he would risk everything. He would give up everything to love Christ to love Christ's body, to love his people. So you find this transformation. And so I would ask you, do you see grace producing and replacing sin with a greater faith and faithfulness and a greater love for Christ and his people? John would describe this process in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, when he would write this, We know that we have passed out of death into life, 
because we love the brothers and sisters. In other words, we know that grace has made an impact in our life because we love differently. We love better now. The one who does not love remains in death. In other words, they're not experiencing grace. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. You see grace at work, right? God does grace for us, but we can't do it ourselves. And so we can't do it for him, but we can do it for one another. And so, but whatever... Whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? So we are called to look. Again, one of those indicators of grace is this idea that my faith and my love, that I love better, I have greater faith that grace is pushing me in that direction and growing that as I appreciate it. Number three, a third thing we can measure ourselves from Paul's testimony here. I see myself being perfected by knowing my imperfections. Now, that may not make any sense, but I'm going to show you what a quote in a moment that, I, that maybe draws that to, out for us. But Paul would say, the saying is trustworthy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's easy to say that Christ came to save the world. It's easy that Jesus came and, and the cross was for everybody. We've taught, preached that sermon in the last few weeks. But it's a different thing to say that Christ came to die for all and that I'm on the head of the line. Of all the people who needed grace, I'm at the front of the line because I'm the most deserving sinner um, who deserves condemnation, but I'm the most need of grace. And so that phrase, that idea that Paul expresses there, he could have stopped and left off the of whom I'm the foremost and been fine. It would have been true. But Paul understood that grace um, does its work the more that I know I need it. And, and again, as I said before, somebody went back and kind of put a timeline. Because Paul has said this phrase, I'm the least or I'm the most undeserving. He's used this idea three or four times. And you can kind of put a timeline on those letters in those books. And in 1 Corinthians 59, written about 57 A.D., Paul would say of himself, I'm the least of the apostles. Again, he'd been serving Jesus 15, 20 years by that point. So he, he understood that. A few years later in Ephesians 3, 8, he called himself less than the least of all the saints. And now in 1 Timothy, you're in the early 60s, a few years later, he calls himself the chief of sinners. And I think it's in, instructive for us to realize that the longer that he walked with Jesus, the more he appreciated grace. He didn't get comfortable with it. It wasn't something he took for granted. It wasn't something he said, well, I've, I've got this, I've been doing this 30 years. I know this Jesus thing. I've got it down okay. That wasn't Paul's demeanor, his attitude. His attitude was very much, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more and more I need him. The more and more I am impressed by grace because he continued to be perfected. He continued to be changed into the image of Jesus by knowing his imperfections. It's kind of like if you hang around with somebody who's really good at something. They're a painter, they're a musician, they're an athlete, they're a whatever. You find somebody. You've got people in your life like that. Um, and the longer you hang out with them, the more you're amazed with just how do you do that? How do you paint that? How do you make that note? How do you do those things? I don't understand that. Because the longer I'm with you, the more I see how great you are. And I realize I can't do any of those things. And there ought to be that. Grace ought to be drawing those things out. Now, here's where I take that phrase. There's a couple of quotes from Alexander McLaren and C.S. Lewis. Um, 
say this, the sign of growing perfection is the growing consciousness of imperfection. That's probably a statement you should think about more than here, but the sign of growing perfection, in other words, growing into Christ-likeness, is the growing consciousness of imperfection. The more you become like Christ, the more you will find out, find out your unlikeness to him. So again, there's this gap that ought to grow, not to drive you away and discourage you and think you're a loser, but just be amazed at Jesus that he would include you in this. C.S. Lewis put it this way. When a man is getting better, and by better he means more Christ-like, he understands more and more clearly that evil is still in him. When a man is getting worse, in other words, less Christ-like, he understands his own badness less and less. And so, as we think about grace and measuring ourselves, say, how much is grace working in my life? I would just simply ask, do you see yourself as a sinner more and more or less and less? Do you appreciate and own the fact that, you know what, the longer I live this life, the more I find my cracks, my flaws, my sins? Or do I think, you know what, I've been doing this okay, I'm better than a lot of people. I could find a long list of people that are pretty big losers, and I'm not those people. So do you find a comfort with sin, with comfort with yourself? Or do you see, yeah, as Paul did, 30 years later, I am still the chief of sinners. And note the present tense on that, right? He said, he's not saying I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am. That word is important in that sentence, right? Number four, I serve as an example of the spiritual potential available to any and all. You see, grace works in its life to realize um, that Paul could have, in, and in fact, in Philippians chapter three, he makes a case that when he was a Jewish man, he could outline his spiritual resume, and it was impressive. He had the right pedigree. He had the right education. He had the right experience. He had the right openings. He had all these great things in his old life. He said, this is my resume. If I was to stand before the Lord, here's my resume, Lord. I should be hired into your kingdom because look how good I am. But what does he say? If you keep reading in Philippians 3, Paul says, that's all gone. He describes it as a, a pile of dung, if I could use Paul's words there. It's, a, it's, it's nothing, nothing. It's worthless. It's poo, okay? Um, and so that's a Greek word. And so that, it, but it's nothing. And that's exactly the word he uses. It's a pile of nothing. It's a pile of dung. Because what can I offer to the Lord who's perfect and awesome and holy? I can't offer anything. I come empty-handed. And so when Paul says, the example that I want to leave to the world is not my impressiveness— but it is the impressiveness of a God who is, note his words here, his perfect patience is an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul wanted his life to be his testimony to say, you know what? If the Lord can save me, he can save anybody. Because look who I was. And he was patient. He kept poking and prodding and nudging me and, and convicting me. But I resisted until the moment when I finally gave in. So there's this perfect patience that God is, is, on, is displaying through his life. And so when grace is at work, I, I really think we're not so caught up in trying to put out this perfect pers persona of, oh, I've got it all together. My life's fine. I'm good. I'm well. That needs to go away. I think as a Christian, there ought to be a place, as Paul is willing to do, where I'm not afraid to say, this is where my life is really messed up. And this is where the Lord is showing mercy and grace and helping me right now. Um, that doesn't, that's an awkward thing. That's hard. That's uncomfortable oftentimes. 
But Paul was never afraid to say, hey, don't ever forget who I was. I was a mess. But look what the Lord is doing in my life because it all points to him. And number five, I think when grace is at work strongly in our life, I am provoked to worship this God of grace. I am quickly provoked to worship this God of grace. And it's interesting that when you read Paul's letters, I love it when he breaks into doxologies because he's going on, he's teaching truths, he's illuminating the greatness of Christ, and all of a sudden he just can't help himself. He just breaks into these little beautiful songs of doxology. And that's exactly what he does here at the end of this testimony. And so to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he breaks into worship. Um, and so as Paul considers all that God did for him, he breaks into praise. And he gives four wonderful designations of our great God. And I just wonder, as I look at this, it doesn't seem like it took Paul the gap between where he was and moments of worship seemed to be very, very close, right? Beat him up, uh, humiliate him, throw him in a prison cell in Philippi in Acts 16, 17. And worship was not far from that, right? And most of us, worship would have been the last thing on our mind because I just had a terrible day and I hurt and my body's just in great pain and, and the world is against me. Worship seems far away, but worship was never far from Paul. And I think that's a grace. Um, and I would think one of the things that we would understand about grace today is that when I find myself never much in the mood to glorify, to worship, to thank God, there's a grace issue there in my heart. Because a person who has lived and, and is experiencing grace, as Paul is describing it here, worship is never far from that person's mind, heart, and lips. And so I would just say, if you find yourself going through your week and you never find yourself in moments of, God, you're so good. God, I appreciate your traits. And listen to the traits that he highlights. God, you are the king eternal. He is the king of all ages who sovereignly governs every age before creation, after creation, to the last day, and on into eternity. God, you are in complete control. You reign. You are king eternal. He calls him immortal. God, there's nothing that phases you. Nothing touches you in your strength. You are secure. There's no decay, no destruction. You are imperishable, incorruptible, immortal. He calls them invisible. God, you are unique. You, are, you, you live in, in unapproachable light that no one can see. You are other than us. And Paul finishes with the only God. He alone is what he is. In Isaiah 45, verse 18, God would describe himself. I am the Lord and there is no other. And so there ought to be in our life, if grace is at work and I'm understanding what grace has done for me, is doing and will do for me, worship should never be a hard thing for me to get in the mood for, right? It should just be a thing that is close to my heart and my lips because um, God is good and grace shows that to us. Peter would echo this thought. And I love the way he echoes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, and here's the phrase, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. That's another description of how grace works. But Peter says the reason that God brought all this together is that so you and I would proclaim the virtues of the one who called you. So the longer you walk with the Lord, I hope that you are, have a better vocabulary, a better understanding, more stories to tell that talk about all the Lord's virtues, his holiness, his kindness, his mercy, his love, 
That, that ought to be a growing thing in our life. You see, many of us have lost the joy of our salvation. And we've done so because we have forgotten what God has done for us. We may be able to regurgitate it in our minds, but we don't feel it. We don't really let it hang out deep in our hearts. When hard things come, we forget it quickly. And so many of us go through life without much joy as a Christian because we've forgotten grace. We have forgotten what God has done for us. But Paul didn't do that. Paul lived with a great joy because he never forgot what grace was and what grace was doing. And so I just would ask you today, do you remember that? Do you know that in your life? Many of you in this room have been Christians for a long time, as I have, and it's easy to lose that joy and just get into routine, go through the motions. But we need that reminder, as Paul is giving to us today, of, man, the beauty and the depth and the, the activity of grace. Yeah, it forgave us, but it should be doing this ongoing work in our life, this ongoing work of, of helping us to see the Lord helping us to see what Christ has done for us, helping us to grow and to appreciate, to grow in love and faith, uh, to just change the way we see ourselves and to see the world. Um, one author I read this week appreciated it. He talked about how grace changes the conversation in our heads. Think of the woman that we started with in John chapter 8. Think of the conversations in her head as she was on the ground there, humiliated, ashamed, um, judged, hated on by so many people, condemned. But Jesus changed the conversation, not just around her, but within her. And, and I just hope that I and that you get grace that does that. That grace changes the conversation about you. God speaks of you differently because of grace. You're no longer an enemy, but you are a friend. You are a son or daughter. It changes the conversation within you. And those words that oftentimes Satan and, and are just our own minds stir up that are so negative, that tear us down. Scripture comes and, and echoes what Jesus says. I don't condemn you. Now go and be different. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The conversation changes around us and within us because grace is present. And so we're going to pray and, and we're going to sing our song of worship today. It, it just reminds us of the God who... Um, can take all of our death and bring gardens of life into us. And as we sing, maybe you just need to, if you're a Christian here already, maybe you just need to allow God to prick your heart again to, so that you feel that again. You appreciate what grace does for you. And maybe you're not a Christian here today and you need to talk about that. You need to make those steps of saying, you know what, I have nothing to offer but myself. And in faith, I put myself in the Lord's hands and I surrender to him. I repent of my own efforts. I repent of my rebelliousness. I repent of my sin. And I will surrender to Christ in baptism um, out of my, out of his, because of his love and promises to me and out of my love and my trust and my faith in him. And so maybe you need to do that. We would love to talk with you about that. Today. Let's stand together and let's pray and then we will sing. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for that grace that speaks differently to us than anywhere else we go in this world. Everywhere we go, it's earn it, prove it, be good enough. But then we come to you, and we can never earn it. 
We can never prove it. It will never, ever be good enough. But we're met with the response of that's okay. Because Christ did earn it, and he did pay for it, and he has given it to us in grace. And so, Father, may that thought never become old or stale to us. May our hearts always resound with the beauty of grace, just as we've seen in the life of an old man named Paul. And so whether we are young or old here today, may our hearts be soft and may they be excited to think about the grace and the kindness and the goodness of Jesus towards us. And may we move in faith uh, to him. And so we love you today, Father, and we thank you for Christ and what he's given to us. And we pray these things in his great name. Amen.